what I want to do today is divide the time we have together into two parts. I'm going to give you some handouts to work on your own, to work with, preferably with a partner or two uh, in a couple of the session. Uh, and then I'll wrap up and so we'll give it about an hour. And that and then I'll talk for an hour and a half. Is that right? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So uh, just a word of uh, what I want from you. So basically we're going to talk about Jesus in this homework. So I've, I've prepared a handout that has only the bare sources with a few guiding questions. Basically, we're going to look at how Jesus is portrayed in the Talmud. Before we start doing that, we need a few words of uh, explanation. When I say Jesus in the Talmud, that's a complicated word to say because Jesus actually does almost never appears in the actual printed Talmud. When you look at the big volume, purposely not meant for women to carry because they're so heavy and big. The printed ones are not, Jesus will not be mentioned there because of censorship. A lot of the places where Jesus was mentioned was either erased or changed in some way. So when I'm preparing a handout to you to learn of Jesus in the Talmud, we're actually going to look at Jesus as he appears in manuscript version of the Talmud. So um, when you look at some of the sources, we actually, when we get to the second part of my talk in the second handout, second handout We'll look at the, we'll compare what we find in Manuscript and what we find in the print. So we'll have that aspect as well. So just take, bear that in mind when we're reading this. And um, I'm not going to take up too much of your time, so please uh, start reading. You have the, the sources in Hebrew and in, uh, well, Aramaic and in English. And um, really flow with the conversation, but the main question... I have uh, when, when you look at the sources, please take, take the time to both look at what the sources are doing with the figure of Jesus. How is he portrayed? Is it surprising? What did you come? Be aware of your uh, expectations of the text and see, see what the text do with this figure and how does it emerge from the bunch of sources that I'm going to give. The idea basically was to get you confused, and I hope we've reached that stage. You succeeded. Wonderful. Okay. Why did I do it this way? Because this is how it is. The Tom, you are you are now almost expert in the entire corpus of Jesus' stories in the Talmud. That's it. There's maybe two more stories that mention Jesus, and that's it. There's no explanation. There's no outside information that I'm hiding from you. That's it. That's what the Talmud preserved to us, and we're supposed to make do. Now, I'm going to supply us with a few hints to try and figure out some of the stuff that we've been reading, and I think it's very helpful. But for the readers of the Talmud, and I, and I want us to think about this while we read the sources together, I want us to keep thinking about a few links along the chain of transmission. Who created this tradition? What did they know? Why did they create the tradition the way they did? But the story doesn't end there, right? We have the people who transmitted the text, right? Who pass it on and on and on, and put them within Suviot or within the corpus of the Talmud, and the people who kept reading them from generation to generation until the censorship cut up some of them out. But we have to keep in mind that when we're reading a text and we don't understand what's happening, the question goes way farther than us, right? So th because this is it. This is what we have. And I want to basically think together what was the point. And more importantly, because I'm a scholar of Jewish-Christian interaction, and I'll talk about it in a second, I want to know what does it tell me about Jewish-Christian interaction in the ancient world. So basically that's why... why so I teach Talmud in Ben-Gurion University. 
Uh, I'm one of the only two uh, female academics in Israel with a job a professorship uh, in Talmud. Uh, a horrible state of affair that should be rendered and changed. I actually came back from the AJF, the Asian Jewish Studies in America, and things are looking much better now in academic uh, institution in the United States. In Israel, we're still far away from that. And I teach Talmud, but my I wrote my dissertation actually at Yale University where I, my, my degree is in religious studies and I studied side by side with scholars of Christian uh, studies and I think that's not a coincidence that my dissertation and my book and my, my research that come out of it is actually uh, um, a result of this interaction with, with students who were doing this kind of stuff. Because basically I'm going to ask, when the rabbis are writing what they're writing, we tend to look at it from the page of the Talmud because we open the page of the Talmud and we read. I'm going to try and help us raise our gaze above today and tomorrow and ask what was happening in the world of the writers. I'm, I'm using writers very loosely, right? We don't know when this was actually put down to in writing, right? But the composer of those traditions, what was happening in the world? And more importantly, what did they know about their Christian neighbors? What did they think about them? Did they know them at all? How did they present their interaction with them? These are all questions that we as historians don't have answers to. We don't have a YouTube or an Instagram account of, you know, Monday at 7 p.m. a meeting between Jews and Christians in whatever, Persia, Babylonia and Persia. No, we don't. So now we have to figure out through the text how much they knew. The assumption basically in research was until very recently that if, so first, no, Jews lived in their own bubble and did their own thing. It was very unique and very special and no one did anything like what we did. If there was any connection to Christianity, we should look for it in the West. Why? Because in the ancient world, and this is uh, from your handle from tomorrow, you'll have a, a, a map there, uh, we actually have two uh, uh, empires. We have the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire. Now, Palestine, the land of Israel, was actually part of the Roman Empire. See the purple one? That's the Roman Empire. And Israel was, uh, the land of Israel was, was on the eastern, one of the easternest, easternest? Yeah. most yeah. eastern yeah. provinces yeah. of, of, the, of the Roman Empire. A very important one because that was the route to northern Africa, a very important one. Once I taught this class and there was someone who, who does birds in the room. Mm -hmm. And he told me that it's true for birds as well. Because mm -hmm. if they migrate north, this is why Israel is very important for birds. Okay, so now, now we know that. But in any case, important for the Roman Empire because that was a land uh, uh, passage for northern Africa. So this is why Palestine was very important in the ancient world. So, Palestine under Roman rule. Now, in the 4th century, Constantine converts and makes the Roman Empire into Christian Empire. Making it the Byzantine Empire. Right? So from now on, Palestine is under Roman rule or Christian rule. So if we find any references to Christianity, we should look for it there. But not in the Babylonia area. Jewish Babylonia is found in the Persian Empire, that's the yellow. Right? The Persian Empire, this is what's called the Sasanian Empire, ends in the Islamic conquest in the 7th century. No Christian, who cares about Christian? They're not there. So, no need to look for Christianity in the Babylonian Talmud. I'm part of a new trend of studies that says, uh, first, not true, uh, Christianity was huge in the Persian Empire. This is what's called Eastern Christianity. The language that's been spoken by the Eastern Christians are actually Syriac, a dialect that's much closer to Babylonian Aramaic than Greek is to Hebrew in Palestine or Babylonian uh, 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 Palestinian Aramaic. So anyway, the language is very close. 
And there's a lot of Christian. And the Persian Empire is filled with Christians. And you'll see tomorrow also in a, in a map that I'll show you. It's a little far to see. You'll see it tomorrow, those of you who choose to join me tomorrow, that there's a lot of Christian in the Persian Empire. So, scholars such as myself say, wait. Let's turn and see if there is any indication of Christian, Christian interaction in the Talmud. When scholars did look at that, the immediate prospect was Jesus. Let's go look for Jesus in the Talmud. Who are the first scholars to have done that? Christian scholars. They were looking for tradition about Jesus. They're what's called the quest for historical Jesus. Jesus was crucified in the year 30, right? He was born, theoretically, maybe in December, we don't know. Uh, but he was crucified in the year 30. But the first sources we have about his life in the Gospels are from the 80s. So 50 years after he was crucified. Paul, in his letters, write in the 50s, that's closer to Jesus, but it doesn't tell us a lot about Jesus the person. So when the Christian scholars want to know stuff about Jesus, they're looking very, very carefully to all the sources that can supply that, and they're like, whoa, the Talmud has some sources about Jesus. Wow, and they're Jewish too. So probably they have some stuff to tell us about Jesus. What's the problem with this assumption? The Babylonian Talmud was redacted when? See my saying? No one knows, but somewhere either 5th, 6th, or 7th century. See, that's kind of a big gap, right? But let's assume we're taking the middle ground, 6th century CE. So we're talking at least 500 years after Jesus is dead, or 400 years after Jesus is, well, crucified, right? So we don't know uh, what's the validity of the historical context of what we have. I'm actually going to go through the sources we did today, and I'm actually going to say the conclusion that scholars have since reached that, well, rational scholars, that the Talmud doesn't help us very much in the quest for historical Jesus because the Talmud has other agenda on its mind. The Talmud does something else. And we're going to figure out what it's doing. But while it's doing that thing, I think it can still give us some historical information, not about Jesus and his time, first century CE, but rather about Jews and Christians in the Persian Empire in the 5th or 6th century CE. And that's the history I want to locate with you today. How much did Jews that late in the 5th and 6th century know about Christianity? How did they look about on Christianity? What did they feel about Christianity? How did they represent it? The creation of Christianity, etc., etc. So that's what I want to do today. Now, remember how confused we were? Babylonian Talmud, yes. The Palestinian Talmud, redacted 4th century, no mention of Jesus. Mm. Interesting question. Why, right? If we're looking for Jesus, we find it in the Talmud, at Babylonian Talmud, and not Palestinian Talmud. Interesting question. If we have time, we'll talk about this more. But for my, my, for my place, right? Babylonian Talmud. Okay, so let's start reading our sources. First, I want to show you, uh, before I start reading the sources, in your new handout, see the last two pages, I don't know, for some reason it's, I do A4 in American letters, so it's kind of got spread more. You can see I compared between what the manuscript, I'm talking about this page. See that one? And the one yeah. be, uh, behind that? See that? Those? Yeah. I have a colored one. You have a black and white one, right? The end, the end, the, the last two pages, right? So here I actually showed you how the printed edition looks and how the manuscript version looks, right? So if you see, for example, the first one, uh, 
you know what, let's start reading and then I'll show you each source I read you. I'll show you how it's done in the manuscript. So in any case, just to show you what we're doing is actually not found in the manuscript. Okay. So first story that we have. Okay. This is from Shabbat. And the story says that. He who scratches a mark on his flesh. So this is in the context of Shabbat. And we're talking Shabbat, <coughs> sorry, 104B. The first handout, the one that you read on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So we're reading the sources now. The scratches. Shabbat 104B. The context is in, in tracted Shabbat. The question is, you know, when you're not allowed, there's the Lamentet the, Avot uh, Melacha 39, uh, prohibition of Melacha did not Shabbat. And one of them is writing. Now the Talmud then goes on to ask, what does writing mean? Right? So kind of, does it mean, um, you know, how much do you write? How long does it have to stay? And while they're discussing that, they're asking about tattoos. When you're writing on your flesh, that's the scratches, right? Uh, when you're writing on your body, does it count as counting uh, as writing or not? And as part of this discussion, the Talmud says, it will talk, Rabbi Eliezer said to the sages, but did not Ben Sada bring forth witchcraft from Egypt by means of scratches in the form of charm upon its flesh? So Rabbi Eliezer brings a press case. And he says, hey, we know that this guy called Ben Sada wrote on his flesh because as part of the discussion of tattoos they talk about what can you write on tattoos and what cannot and he says this guy Ben Sada we know came from Egypt and he had tattoos on his hand on, on his hand with witchcraft stuff right Shafim uh, uh, sorcery witchcraft okay the rabbi's answer he was a fool and proof cannot be adduced from fool. Okay, so all of a sudden we have, and I'll stop here for a second and tell you that the word fool is very, very, very rarely used in rabbinic literature. It's used for two purposes. It's used for one purpose as part of a group of a legal group, such as people who are hearing impaired or uh, mentally impaired or little children, and sometimes even women, obviously. And so, and fool, uh, fool is someone who's mentally impaired, right? So this is part of a legal discussion. That's one use of fool. What's the word? But you, fool. Shote. Shatya, shote, right? But, but, using fool as a curse, as saying, you fool, is very, very rarely used. Very rarely. It's used against Galilean, which we all know are fool. Or it's used against Minim, heretics. And it's used here against this Ben Sada. So seeing the word fool should, you know, all the bells should be ringing, not Christmas bells, but regular bells should be ringing, and we should all be very surprised to see this word. Something here is very wrong with Ben Sada, okay? Now, because he mentioned Ben Sada, now they're not talking about this name. And this is where a lot of you got very confused, and I said, good, we're supposed to be confused, because the rabbis are confused. And they're saying, oh, Ben Sada? Wait, was he the son of Sada? You're calling him the son of Sada, this guy who has witchcraft on his... But we know that he was the son of Pandera. He should be called Ben Pandera, not Ben Sada. Why are you calling him that? It's very, very important to see the son of who he is. The husband was Sada, and the lover was Pandera. It's better in Hebrew. Habal Sada ve'abu'el Pandera. Right? The, the one who's doing the bila, the intercourse. As opposed to the husband. What, is it, what are they talking about? Yeah, what are they talking about? 
adultery, right? An illegitimate uh, child, right? So an illegitimate child will have two fathers, right? Because he had the biological father and the legal father, right? So you can name someone Ben so-and-so, biological father, and Ben so-and-so, legal father. Then we're good, right? So the same person can be called both Ben Sada and Ben Tandera. So far so good? Yes. So the person we're talking about is illegitimate. They have traditions, and they're trying to figure out how to, it's like a puzzle piece, right? They have, they know something about Ben Sada, they know something about Tandera, they're not making this up. They're trying to figure out how this works. They're making up the biological connection, maybe, but they're trying to figure out how the pieces. They know that this guy is illegitimate. They know that he's named Ben Sada, but also Ben Tandera, but this is not over yet, because then someone comes along and says, wait, you can't say that the biological father was Sada, because we know that the husband was Tafos Ben Yudha. Okay, so now we're in trouble. We have three fathers. What do we do? Uh, okay, so now the mother is Sada. Don't forget there is a tiny insignificant detail that a son is also a product of a third person, the one who carried her in her belly for nine months. So there's also a mother. So we can have three, three yeah. responsibles for a person, right? So we have the mother, we have the biological father, and we have the, the, the legal father, right? So we have three. So we can call the same person Ben Sada, Ben Papos, and Ben Tandera. Okay? And then he says his mother is Sada, but why call her his mother Sada? But if the mother is Sada, we know her name. Her name was Miriam. Ah, but then they said, no, that's okay. That's not a problem because Miriam is the same person as Sada. Why? Because as Kumpadita, they used to say, Satat Jap Mibala. That's a word play. They take the word Sada, cut it in two, and use it as an Aramaic punch to say she's the one who turns away from her husband. Meaning? So Miriam is Sada, so we're all good. The same person is both uh, son of Pandera, son of Sada, son of Papos, and son of Miriam. We're all good. So Stada now, means what with this pun? Stada. Stada. She turned away. <laughs> and that means she turned away from her husband, <laughs> being unfaithful to her husband. So it's not okay. Asking. Now. Why do you call her Stada? The Aramaic says Ben Sada. Right, but look at the look at the because the Arabic from Medina is the last line. Satat da mi ba'ala. That's not till the end. That's okay. I'm saying that that's how the rabbis were... Oh, you, you, you're referring about the Reish and the Dalet? So the Reish and the Dalet, that's, that's something that happens in manuscript a lot. The rabbis obviously read it as a, as a Dalet because they do a pun, right? So they, they call it a But the Reish and the Dalet interchange in manuscript. Why can't we just Ben Sitra, Sitra, or something like that? That's not what the Talmud does. That's a good pun. You could have been a rabbi in a Talmud. That's not what the rabbis do, right? They did Maybe that Yeah, maybe you were. Okay, so we have the same person that has three names, right? Ben Sada, Ben Pandela, Ben Papos, and Miriam, or whatever. What makes me bring this source to you now, even though the word Jesus is not mentioned once in this text? What makes me suspect that this is it? Okay, so Miriam Magdalena, right? Uh, is reportedly the mom's name. Now we know of a Miriam Magdalena that was in the time of Jesus. What's weird about this though? Maria Magdalena was actually not Jesus' mom. That was a different Mary. Maria Magdalena was actually a whore that was going around with Jesus and, and one of his friends. I don't know if you read the Da Vinci Code and there was like a whole, there's a secret, whatever. Let's not go into that. But, 
that mistake of, of connecting the two Marys is actually something that happens a lot in writers in ancient rule. They confuse the two Marys, the Mary Magdalene, the mother, another mother. That's okay, that's fine, we're good with that. But the rabbis know something about Mary Magdalene and Mary, and they're confusing this. So we have Mary Magdalene, and we have the word fool. Don't forget, this is very, very harsh against this guy. But what's the main point of this text? He was illegitimate. Illegitimate. Why is this important when we're talking about Jesus? The virgin birth. Exactly. So, Jesus doesn't have a father, or he does have a father, God. According to, Jesus, to New Testament tradition, not all of them, but two of the four uh, Gospels report that Jesus was actually born as an immaculate conception, meaning God came along and impregnated Mary, and God is her, is his dad, right? So, the text says, uh-huh, God is her, uh-huh. We know who the father is, we know who the, the boil is, um, how do we call them, the, the lover, the paramour, yes? We know, don't tell us, you know, uh, okay, we know. And this whole text is about the legitimacy of Jesus. By the way, it was so much fun, I was teaching this, I'm, I'm spending the year in the sabbatical at Yale, as a professor, uh, visiting professor, and I'm teaching, I have to teach downtown in this graduate seminar, but when the divinity school heard I'm coming, they're like, oh, come do an intro to rabbinics to specifically designed for Christian studies, right, for those learning for the ministry. And I've been teaching this semester, and it was so wonderful, but this class was just, you know, they, I said, I give like a, this option, I said, this one class, you can ask for whatever you want me to teach in rabbinic literature, let's go for it. And they asked for Jesus in the Talmud. I was very nervous to teach this, whatever, we're doing this. It was, it was wonderful. But in any case, this was a hard text to teach, right? The Talmud, the most important thing for the Talmud to say, and look how, how they're like, you see how you're all very confused about what it means? They're confused. They have bits and pieces of information about Jesus. Bottom line, I'm Amzer, right? Now, we don't like Mamzerim so much because it's a lot of problem with Chitunim or whatever. But I want you to understand also in the ancient world what it means to be a legitimate. In the ancient world, the ramification was enormous. Why? You do not inherit if you're not a legitimate part of your father. That means you don't have the protection of your family, you don't live part of it, you don't deserve anything. Uh, illegitimate sons in the ancient world was a huge thing. Well, adoption was you know, a good solution to, to solve a lot of the problem or recognition of sons of illegitimate. But it, it's a huge insult. It's really, really a huge, huge, huge insult to, to put someone in that camp. Especially so if we know that the, the Christian tradition makes it a big deal, especially in the second century, if you don't believe in the Immaculate Conception, you're, you, know, you can't. So the Talmud is like, well, we're not buying it. But look what's so cool. Remember how you were like, what is the Ben Pandera, Ben Sada? I can help with the Ben Pandera because it appears in other sources as well. When Jesus is called in some rabbinic sources, when they talk about Jesus, they automatically call him Ben Pandera. Jesus ben Pandera, Jesus ben Pandera. Nowhere in rabbinic literature there is an explanation to what that means. We don't know what it means. Remember, some, some of you have told them, this is the cool part of my talk today. Seriously, from all the stuff that I teach, that's like one of the coolest. We actually have a key to solve what it means because of a quirk of history. Now, this is your new handout, the first. Origin is a church father, a Christian church father, writing, writing in 231. So in the beginning of the 3rd century, Origen writes a book. The book is called Conta Celsus, meaning against a guy named Celsus. Now, we're in the 3rd century CE. 
He's writing against Celsus. Now Celsus is a pagan guy writing in the second century, in 177. Now Celsus is writing a vicious attack against Christianity. Now, Christianity is just emerging, and the pagans are writing all kinds of books against Christianity to show how stupid it is. And Celsus is one of them. And he writes a book called The True Word. Right? And he writes a book in 177 against Christianity. Now, the book is lost. Because, you know, pagans lost. Big time. But, Origen's writing against Celsus survives. Now, the way Origen did his book is like he quotes parts from Celsus. He says, da 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 da. Oh, he's so wrong. And then Origen rebuffs. But and then he quotes another part. And then he writes the whole thing. Now, what's cool about this? Because he's quoting him, we have almost all of, not all, but almost all of the true word, which is kind of cool, right? He was writing it to defend Christianity against them. They lost and died altogether, but because Origen wrote it, we have it, which is really awesome. But, story doesn't end there. So, third century Origen writing, writing a second century writer, Pagan. But that Pagan guy is quoting a Jew, trashing Christianity. So, in the second century, Celsus is quoting a Jew that lived, I'm guessing, beginning of the second century. So we have, are you following this? this is so, okay. so we have origin of the third century, quoting Celsus in the, in the middle of the second century CE, quoting a Jew probably earlier in the beginning of the second century, quoting what the Jews are saying about Jesus. Let's read what they're saying. Now, again, we would not have had it if origin has not quoted, I'm doing a conditional here in English, it's very hard. If, uh, if French is harder, but still English is that. We would not have had it if Origen would not have quoted Celsus, who, who quoted a Jew, that Origen quotes Celsus as a Jew. Okay? Well said. Now, yes, well said. Okay, so now, don't forget, the Talmud that we're reading is the earliest that we have the sources, maybe 4th century. Now we have an access to what the Jews are saying in the 2nd century, 200 years earlier. Thanks to a Christian and a pagan that quotes the Jews. I'm telling you, it's super cool. You write it very nicely, you say portrays the Jews. Well, it's a whole question. Do you actually mean a Jew or not? But in any case, if you want, we can talk about it in the source. But look at the source. Where is it? Where is Celsus writing? This is uh, That's a good question. I think it's in, in, in my, uh, Asia Minor. I think I'm not. I'm not so certain. That's a good question. But in any case, back to us. But look at this. I, I actually uh, you can't see it so well in this. Um, but I, I tilted the the quotes from the of, of Celsus. So let's see. He portrayed the Jew. So Origen says that Celsus portrays the Jew. I have a conversation with Jesus himself, refuting him on many charges. Like the Jew says that he had conversation with Jesus. So probably a very early Jew or whatever traditions from Jewish. Look at this first, and then slant. This is what Celsus says that the Jew said. He fabricated the story of his birth from a virgin. And he reproached him because he came from a Jewish village and from a poor country woman who made her living by spinning. Seriously? You're saying that you're born from a virgin? We know your mom. And you know what kind of woman she was? She was spinning. Now, spinning is like the worst. Women who spin in public. Spinning with the ancient word was considered a very erotic because um, you were like using all your body, I'm, I'm not going to show you, but using all your body and doing this and usually with their hair out, which is like the war. So the women who spun in public were considered, what's that kind of word, um, loose, loose women, loose women. So she, we, we have that virgin, we know your mom. 
you know, she's from a poor uh, country village, and she was a spinner. She says that he, Celsus, says that he, the Jew, right, were saying that she was driven out by her husband, who was a carpenter by trade, when she was convicted of adultery. Look how much the Jews know. The Jews know that the father was a carpenter, which, by the way, Christian tradition agree that, yes, Joseph was a carpenter, but know that here she's not engaged, she's married, but her husband knows that she's loose, and he kicks her out of the house. So, seriously, virgin? Huh? <laughs> then he says, Celsus, that the Jew, that after, the Jew says, that after she had been driven out by her husband, and while she was wandering disgracefully, she secretly bore Jesus. By the way, we know that in she was manger. in a manger, right? Yeah. So according to Jewish tradition, there was no place at the inn, and no, and Joseph and her, and Joseph is by her side. According to this tradition, the Jew are like, huh, she was outside, thrown in the zone, whatever, homeless. He says that because Jesus was poor, he hired himself out as a laborer in Egypt. Uh, okay, remember Egypt? We know Egypt. How do we know Egypt? Remember? The snatches, the tombs come from Egypt. So... New Testament sources tell us that Jesus actually went to Egypt and came back, portraying him as Moses, right, coming back from Egypt. This Jew and the Jew in the Talmud know that Jesus was in, in Egypt. I'm pointing out all the stuff that the Jews know, because that's important for me. And there, he learned certain magical powers which the Egyptians are proud to have. Well, why is Jesus in Egypt? Because we all know. To get a tattoo? We call, oh, all know that if you want to learn magic, where do you go? Egypt. We all know. The Chaltumim, right? In, the, in, the, in Genesis, right? The, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, Exodus, right? When he goes. Yeah, but we'll talk about it in a second. When, when, he, call, when, he, goes to, when he goes to Egypt, um, uh, when Moses comes along, you remember when, the first, when he does the first uh, sign? Uh, he, 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 he takes his mate, right. turns it into a snake. What does the Chaltumim do? They do the same thing. And then what happens? His stick is bigger than theirs, and he eats the. It's a very male uh, uh, story. And his stick is bigger than theirs, and he eats all the other sticks, right? So the problem is not that he's able to do miracles and they can't. What, what's the difference? Is? His magic is more powerful than theirs. Right? So we know that Egyptians can do the same thing about the dumb, right? The blood, uh, right? They, they can do it too. So the Bible knows that Egypt comes from, uh, magic comes from Egypt. Harry Potter knows that too. <laughs> right? Everyone knows the ancient world. Egyptians are very good at magic. Let's stop here for a second and say, so he went and learned magic from there, and he returned full of pride in these powers and gave himself the title of God. What is the Jew here? And by the way, the Talmud as well does not deny that he had some kind of power. He had the ability to perform miracles, and the Talmud and the Jew and Celsus have no problem with that. We accept. If everyone says he did miracles, so he probably did. What's the problem with his miracles? They're not kosher. They're not kosher miracles, exactly. And here I turn to Harry Potter again, right? So in Harry Potter we have... Did you all read Harry Potter? <laughs> you should. It's very important for somebody to study. So in any case, Harry Potter we have Voldemort, right? We have all the evil uh, uh, magician. What's the, what's the difference between the dark arts and the regular magician? The source of your magic, right? It, it, it can be a magic or it can be a miracle, and the result could be the same result. The question is where it comes from. So in Hebrew the word kishuf is very negative because it means witchcraft or something really bad. And, actually I, actually, I met someone yesterday who told me she, she, she's a minister, a Christian minister in Salem. 
and apparently now Salem becomes a whole thing of there's an actual weekend wizardy yes. communities and they're fighting each other. It's very cool to hear that. In any case, the question is, they both can do miracles. The question is, where's, what's the source of it, right? Is it Kishuf? Is it dark magic? Or is it net? But again, the assumption is that Jesus had the ability to perform miracles. Okay? So far, so good. So look at what we know so far. Celsus is Jew. I'm just wondering. What? There is a book of Deuteronomy. I think it's a chapter 13. That if a false prophet will rise, and he will do, he will perform the wonders. And the the wonders will come true. Okay, be careful with that. Okay. So miracles are problematic, right? So there are people, a lot of people can do miracles. The question is where, what's the source of that miracle? So a net is a problematic thing to rely on, right? So we, so let, let's, let's, let's conclude what we have here. We have a second century Jew confirming what we see in the Talmud. We have Egypt, we have witchcraft, we have the ability to do miracles, right? And, and we have calling in Ben Pandera talking about the illegitimacy of Jesus. That's something that the Jews are making fun of. Seriously, we know your mom. She spins in public. But, and I told you, I promised you, this is the coolest. Let's read the second one. Let us return, however, to the words put in the mouth of the Jew. This is Origen saying, right? Remember, Origen is quoting Celsus, it's quoting a Jew. Are, are you with me? Just yeah. not, so I'll know. It's kind of like, okay. And then, the mother of Jesus is described as being turned out by the carpenter who was engaged to her. Look, there is, uh, was engaged or married. Because, and here this is where it gets cool, because she had been convicted of adultery and had a child by a soldier named Panthera. Are you getting this? Wait, wait, wait. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll see in a second how cool that is. A random three words in Celsus is Jew, quoted by Origen, lost to us in the original Celsus the pagan Jew, solved the meaning of Ben Pandera found in the entire Talmudic Corpus without explanation. And what's that explanation? That not only did she cheat on her husband, we know who she cheated with. It's a Roman soldier named Pantera. Now, let's talk about it for a second. First, the word Pantera, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, don't do that. In Hebrew, we do Tzvi, we do Aliyah, or um, Leo, right? Uh, call someone by a strong animal. Um, uh, what's bear. Do you, do you do bear? No, bear. No, that's old. Uh, dope, dope. That's a good one. Dope, right? A powerful animal. So the same way they used to do... Uh, they used to do uh, Panther. I'm, I'm really calling you all to reuse that name. So Panther was a name in the ancient world for a strong animal. And Romans, we have actual Matsevot. Um, um, we have... Um, no, no, Matsevot. Tombstone. With the word Panther, so people actually Panther. Now, when the when Jews call Jesus Ben Panthera and they explicitly call him Jesus Ben Panthera again and again and again, it's a pun. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really disrespectful name to call someone, oh, the son of the Roman soldier that we all know. And again, they don't explain it anywhere, and we wouldn't have known if Origen didn't find again, Celsus found again. But that coolery doesn't end here. Coolery. I just admitted that word, right? So the coolness of it, or it doesn't end there. This guy named Castell in the 19th century said, why would they call him Pantera of all names? And then he says, look, in Greek, the word for virgin is Parthenos. And the word for panther is Pantheros. So see how cool that is? Instead of calling him the son of a virgin, they're like, uh-uh, not son of a Parthenos, the son of a Pantheros. So the Jews were clever even then in the second century. So if we needed proof of that, now we do. So 
So, so uh, Castell says, I, I, you're not impressed enough with this source. So let, let, me, let me just stop you for a second because really it's wasted on you if you don't get it. But seriously, it never happens that we have this like mystery in the Talmud that we don't know. We had no tool of knowing unless, really, a quirker of history that Origen quotes that source from Kelsus who is lost, who quotes the Jew specifically on that having that source. Yeah, no, no, you're not excited enough. When you need to repent from that one. But when in any case, they figure it out. What? When did they figure this out? They figured it in the 19th century, because they this guy. Was it, they, seriously, super cool. Okay. Uh, Isn't Panther a mixed animal to race anyone? Read Panther? No one is reading a Panther. This is like a mocking. Panther is a mixed animal. I don't know. No idea. In any case, not, not good with animals. In any case, that's what. So, so. The Talmud is making fun of, Jew, of Jesus as an uh, illegitimate son. Now, wait, where's my source? Uh, yes, that's the first source. But look what we know. We know that the Jews are making fun of Jesus. We know that they know about Egypt. We know about the, the witchcraft. And we know about Mary Magdalene. Look how much information in three, three words. And, the, and really, really interestingly enough, we have counsels to show us that Jews were already saying all this stuff that are found in the Talmud in the second century. This is not so obvious. Sometimes we read Talmudic sources and we don't know how early they are and how much are they reflective of Jewish knowledge of Christianity in the early centuries. Now we actually have them. One of the rare occasions we, we do. Yes? When did they get stuff, the origin stuff, the person who did the connection in the 19th century. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Wait. Uh, how does the origin answer off? How did origin? Answer back? Yeah. Oh, you're welcome to read. It's very tedious. Because of all things. I'm not teaching Christianity here. Seriously, super tedious. But in any case, uh, you can reinvite me and we'll do the tedious stuff. Yes. Wonderful. I kind of skipped over that, but the Migdala and the Shire, right? They take Magdala, which is coming from the, the city of Migdal, and they're saying, they're using it as a verb, she lets her hair grow in public, which is like the worst ever. Very good, yes. Thank you. Yes, oh sorry. I just want to close this circle. Yes. Uh, this quote from 1885, of Cassell. Yes. Is he arguing that the origin of notion that Jesus is of virgin birth is a derivative of the Greek word no, 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 exactly the opposite they know that they claim that he is the son of a virgin right? they know that they know that and then they make fun of it and they say, oh, not a son of a virgin, a son of a panther not Palsinos, but Pantos that's a wordplay right? we actually have in a source in uh, one of the rabbinic sources saying it's actually a mitzvah to make fun of going Says instead of, and they have a few puns, they're not very good. But they have, instead of saying that, say that. Instead of saying that, say that. So it's a mitzvah to make fun of it. Apparently, they're very righteous about that. Seems to be putting on its head what was said above. Pantera is a, is a name of a person who is the yes. true father. No, not true father. They, they think we know the father is Pantera. They're calling the father Pantera. Yes. To make fun of the Pantera. Because, because Jesus is not a virgin person. That's what they said. Exactly. That's what they said. And Cassell is a scholar. Christian. In the 19th century. Christian. I think he was a Christian. Yeah. Paulo. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. They, they, so, they want, they want right, right, right. It has nothing to do with the translation of the Septuaginta, I think it is. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. That's what Christians love to say. A virgin child conceived. Yeah, but do you know that the word Amma can be you, okay, a young, a young, young girl who's often a virgin? It's not, it's not mentioned here. But the virgin birth is something that they, that is in the gospel. But at that time they knew the Isaiah. No, Isaiah is one of the sources of that, but it's not mentioned here. The fact that it's common knowledge that she was a virgin, that's in the, in the, in the Gospel. That's in Luke right. and in Matthew. Okay, back to us. Let's read on. So we have all that information from a few lines. But let's go on. Now we move to Sanhedrin uh, 103a. We're, we're back to that source that you were reading, right? So second source. Rabchisa said in the name of Rabbi what is it meant by the verse in Psalms? No even will befall you, no plague will approach your tent. There's a verse in Psalms, but it's a really nice verse. When you, you, when you bless someone and you say to him, may evil never occur in your tent. May something bad never happen to you. Right? So that's a really nice word. But then the Talmud says, and that's a really, I think it's high time that someone does a PhD on the psychology that revealed in the Talmud. There's not enough of intersection on that because this is a really good source for that. The Talmud sits around and they say, the rabbis sit around and say, what's the worst that can happen to a person? When you say to someone, may the worst never happen to you, what's the worst? Let's stop here for a second and think about with yourself. You don't have to say that loud. What's the worst that you don't want happening to you? And I can think of a few. I have kids, you know, and I go to sleep every night thinking of the worst that never, hopefully never happens to them, right? It's, what, what's the worst that you don't want happening? So the Talmud, the, the Talmud tells us the rabbi did the same experiment, and that's the answer that they give. See my smirk. Okay, that's the answer that they give. No evil will befall you. So what's the answer? That the evil inclination shall have no power over you. That's a good answer, right? May the evil inclination not control your, uh, your actions. That, that's not a bad one. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I, No, no, the worst. No, they're saying the least people. If you could say that no evil, no evil will follow you. No. You're saying yeah, no evil. So what's the no evil? That means that not even this thing should happen to you. I, I disagree. I, I disagree. That's a really, that's not, this is a, no evil. What's the evil? I, I think that's a simple reading and I'll read it in a second. Let's read all the way to the end and you'll tell me if it's least or well, not least, right? And what's the second one? No plague will approach your tent that you will not find your wife a doubtful need when you return from a uh, journey. So the rabbis sit together and like, what's the worst that can happen to you? You go on a journey for two months and you come home and your wife is a doubt. <laughs> That's the worst that can happen to you. I read this, I'm like, this is so male. Seriously. Okay, so they have on, this is, this is what they did. But let's read on. Another interpretation. No evil will befall you that bad dreams and bad thoughts will not frighten you. That's a, that's a tough one, right? If you have, you know, really bad dreams, that's a really bad one. By the way, in the ancient world, bad dreams, that's the worst. Bad dreams are really con- taken very, very seriously. They're taken as a sign of what will happen to you. That's a really bad one. And the last one, no plague will reproach your tent that you will not have a son or a disciple who spoils his food like Jesus the Nazarene. Right? Right? Let's stop here for a second. So that's like the worst. So see, this is what I'm saying. This is the worst that can happen that you have a son or a disciple that spoils his food in public. So first, let's, 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 I would just want to show you. Uh, 
Look at this one. This is the, the, la the last one. Uh, is it the last one? Oh, maybe the one. Second to last, this one? No, it's too so the left page for So the, 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 the top one is the printed edition, and the bottom one is the manuscript, one of the manuscripts. You see? It says, You see the red line? Is on the, oh, you don't have to do red, but the line, right? And it doesn't have the word, like Jesus the Nazarene. The manuscript does. Right? So the censorship went over the Talmud and said, no, 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 that's too bad. We don't want to uh, evoke that. And they erase that word. And they're found in uh, the manuscripts alone. So what's the worst thing that can happen to you? That you'll have a son or a disciple that spoils his food in public. And the example for that is Jesus the Nazarene. Okay, now what do you think? What do we learn from that? Obviously, spoiling your food in public is a bad thing, right? But are they talking about the culinary skills of Jesus? No. no. Okay, so what's happening here? Right? First, let's, before we say what he does, what's very, very clear about this sentence? What is Jesus? Children were leaving their family to go become Christians. That's a, a good explanation. I don't know how we get it from spoiling public, but, it, but you made it from the word public, right? But let's talk about it for a second. What's the first thing we do learn from this sentence? The one thing that's very clear from this? It's a negative implication. It's negative for sure, but start with the good thing. He's either a son or a disciple. So Jesus, again, I want to stop here for a second and answer that. What are we reading? We're reading a text from the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century, who knows, but very late in the game that already knows that the Roman Empire is converted to Christianity, maybe, if it's earlier, but not so much. But definitely know that Christianity has won the day. It's a huge religion. <laughs> Jesus won. It's a good And the, still the Talmud reports as Jesus is an example for what? A disciple. Something that's the worst thing that can happen to you is something one of your own turns as bad as that. We'll talk about in a second what does it mean to be as bad as that. But Jesus is still remembered, and that's not the only source, and we'll talk about it in a second, he's still remembered as being one of us, a disciple. A Talmud Chacham, as one of ours who turned bad. And that's very interesting to see, and that's something we'll encounter again and again in the sources that Jesus is still remembered as being one of ours, as late in the game as in the Babylonian Talmud, when they know where this ended. They know where this is leading, and they still refer to Jesus as being one of ours turned bad. Right? Kind of like a. What's the name with that? In the Star Wars. Um, Darth Vader. Darth Vader, yeah. <laughs> kind of that, right? So my kids got into it, so unfortunately I did have to watch uh, this thing. Uh, so, uh, uh, I'm not into it. But in any case, they still remember him as being one of their own, right? So this is something that is very striking. Again, don't forget, we're reading a tradition given in the Talmud very late in the game when they know the end result and they still report Jesus up. Now, what does it mean to spoil your food in public? Now, food in Jewish sources is reported in a few other places, such as, for example, bad cooking is one of the reasons for divorce. Divorce! Definitely so. In Masechet Gitin, we have three opinions. When can you divorce your wife? So, Ishmael says, Bet says, that you can divorce your wife only adultery. if adultery or something, right? Uh, the second opinion of Hillel says, says, even if she spoils your food. And I'll be a keeper sign. Even if you find something, uh, I'm glad you're so eloquent in that, uh, that uh, horrible vision. Yeah. So, only, even if you find someone that looks, sorry, uh, uh, someone who looks, who doesn't, you find someone who looks nicer than her, even for that slight thing. 
Now, this, this, you can divorce. If you're looking for precedence, that's your job. That's your chance. So, and so much so that when George Moore writes his famous treatise called Judaism in 1927, look at what he says. Bad cooking is more serious grounds for divorce than some modern one. Right? So bad cooking is a big one. I always read this in... Uh, uh, I'm a horrible cook, so yeah. So in any case, uh, bad cooking is a really bad thing. But scholars have pointed out when you look at bad cooking in general in rabbinic literature, such as in this case, it doesn't actually make sense that we're talking about actual cooking, right? Jesus, I don't think he would describe as the worst thing that can happen because he burned his cookies when he was cooking, you know, Christmas cookies in the in the street, right? That's not what it's all it's about. So Scott has pointed out to uh, the fact that a lot of the time, cooking and food is a metaphor for pray, love, sex, right? So, so sexual life is often depicted in when we're talking about uh, in, in the metaphor of, of, of food. For example, look at this uh, text from Babi uh, Bochot. Uh, this is on your hand, the new handout. Rab Kahana once went and hid under Rab's bed. If you know this uh, uh, group of stories are hilariously funny, Rab Kahana is, how do you say Nudnik in English? He's a Nudnik. He, he, and I think it's on purpose, right? Uh, we'll talk about it in a second, but he, basically the rabbis bring this figure up to say, we have a problem, an inherent problem, because rabbinical literature trying to really, really push for the disciple-rabbi relationship, right? We have to learn everything from the rabbis. But the rabbis then say, okay, let's, the way the rabbis often do, they push it to the end. If you really need to learn everything from your rabbi, okay, so go then for it. So Rabbi Rabbi goes and actually, uh, you know how in public toilets there's like uh, the divide between the thing, but it's like uh, they save money and they only do like the middle part and you can like go off a stall and look to someone, in, right? Or it from underneath, right? So he does that. He goes and he actually looks at the way his rabbi wipes his behind when he goes to the toilet and the, and, and the rabbis find out, he sees him looking and, well, don't imagine actual souls, right? But whatever. He finds him looking and he says, what are you doing? And he's like, Torahi? Sorry, this is Torah. If you told me that I need to do everything like my rabbi needs to do, now what can I do? And the story ends there. And there's a bunch of stories like that. And obviously the rabbis are bringing to the floor the problem inheriting the, the, the pushing forward for the rabbi-student relationship. So one of the stories Avana once went and hid under Rav's bed. Not just wiping your, your behind when you go to the toilet, but also we want to know what he does in bed. What he does in bed. So he heard him chatting with his wife. I have to do this in Hebrew. Oh, I don't. I'm gonna give you the Hebrew. Oh, so, okay. So Sach, right, chatting with his wife and joking and misachek, joking and doing what he was required, right? So he heard him talking, laughing, having fun, and doing the deed. So he's under the bed, don't forget, and they don't know he's under the bed. And he said to him, so he said out loud, one would think that Abba's mouth has never sipped a dish before. And he said that out loud, right? So Abba's like, I mean, the wife, no one cares about her, but he's like very upset. So he looks under the bed, he's like, Kahana, are you here? Get out of here! And what does he say? This is, this is, this is rude! And when he said, uh-huh, uh-huh, this is a matter of Torah and I'm required to learn it, the story ends there, right? This is obviously very humoristic, but it's pushing to the, to the, to the farther end, the, 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 the relationship between a rabbi and a student. But look at what, what is, why is he surprised about? What is he surprised about? Hiding under the bed. 
He would imagine his rabbi doing the deed very solemnly, you know, lying down and thinking of England or something, right? But no, he sees, he sees that they're having fun, and this is something that is very surprising to him. But look at the word he's using. Look at the word he's using. What is he saying? Never sip the dishes. Never sip the dishes. It's the first time. It looks like he's like, you know, a teenager. Like, it's the first time he's having sex. And look at the word he's using. He's using the metaphor from food. Now, that's an excellent question. What? He, he said, but why, why are you uh, why are you accusing... G- well, so, let's, sorry, let's go back. But basically, what I'm trying to say, or scholars have tried to say, is let's take it back to Jesus and say, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? That is, your student or your son turns out like Jesus, who spoiled his food in public. Meaning, he acted... I can't say that word in English, I'm sorry. He acted sexually permissive in public, right? So he's accused of being. So, your name? Sven. says, wait, excuse me, it's not him, it's his mom. So first, two things. In the ancient world, the way you were conceived will predict how you will be. That's ancient, we see it in other sources, and actually other sources as well. They thought that the way you were conceived will project, so if a mother, for example, is Nida, she's, she's uh, sexually um, impure, then she and, and gets pregnant, that will reflect on the nature of the son. When I got married, I got this like um, handout from the Rabbanut that told me exactly how and when, because otherwise I'll have crooked kids. So this is, this is taken from the Talmud that said that you, this will reflect on the nature of your son. But second of all, and this is back to you, the Talmud actually, and we have that in other sources as well, projects a notion that Jesus himself was promiscuous because who is his friend? Who is he hanging out with? Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, but not just Mary. Who else? He has three people, three kinds of people he hangs out with, according to the New Testament. Fishermen, tax collectors were the worst, and whores. Like, right? Tax collector was like the worst. So, who, who are Jesus' first followers, according to the New Testament? Like the, big, the, like, the bottom of society, the worst people, the rejects, the people that everyone hates, and sexually promiscuous. And we have sources saying that, that. So, the Thomas knows that. And accuses Jesus, in this source, of being sexually promiscuous, and not only that, sexually promiscuous, but also in public. So he's doing something sexually promiscuous in public, and that goes hand in hand with what we know about Jesus. First, because his mother conceived him in such a way, hence leading him to be sexually promiscuous himself. And second of all, because we know that's the company he keeps. Right? So the Thomas knows that. Uh, sexual relations. Well, the No, the woman is a Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Hence I said a very male, yes, in my view. But yes. It's all about sexual stuff, yes. But in any case, two things I want to uh, come out of. So don't forget, I'm doing like a survey of all the stuff that we read. We already had two sources, and there's like six lines, but look how long we're talking about this. We, what we know, what does the Talmud know about Jesus? It knows that he went to Egypt. It knows that he did magic, that he was able to do miracles, right? But bad miracles coming from Egypt, like ma- magic, bad magic, black magic. He is sexually promiscuous. He swore a fast. 
He's one of us. He's a Talmud Chacham, right? No, the carpenter is not in here. This is in Celtus. This is in Celtus, not in the Talmud. But you know his mother is Mary Magdalene, so his name is Mary, and we know something about it. Look how much we know already of Jesus while we're making fun of the fact that he is an illegitimate son. All of this from like two sources. Now, could be, but could be. Now you have to prove it. This is what it means. The, the food thing and the sex thing, we have other sources to support that. We need, we need to show that the use of food is used for teaching, bad teaching. It has been proposed, but I think it has more ground because in other sources we see that food is used for sex. Well, okay. About the food in the New Testament, yes. um, the, the Prushim, when they follow him, um, they ask him why, why your disciple is doing what I want to use that. I want to use the source later on, okay? Because okay? I really want to use that source. Okay, yes. Are we going to use this source? And someone else also mentioned that. So we're going to use that source. Yeah. I just my my understanding is that Jesus was around during the temple times, right? So was he? Could he be talking about when they, you know, sacrificed animals and ate part of them? Is that anything to do with anything? I don't know. You know, because that was like when they, you know, had a goat, an unblemished goat or lamb or whatever. We yeah. don't have any source about New Testament saying that he has anything to do with sacrifices. That wasn't no. his thing. So, but he did talk about purity of food, and we'll talk about that. Okay, any more questions? Let's do the third one. So the third one is the long one. And that's a very famous story. And I want to show you again. Uh, did I show you, show you that one? I didn't show you that one in the manuscript. But okay, let's read Babi from Hebrew. Where I'm, the translation is on the other side. Right? Okay. When King Yanai killed the rabbis, Obiushev and Pache fled to Egyptian Alexandria. Okay. So we're talking about the time of King Yanai, Janaeus, and this doesn't work with Jesus at all. Uh, King Yanai was way before, she was way before, this is... Uh, we don't know when exactly, but way before Jesus. Uh, so, around 50 years beforehand, 60 years beforehand. We don't know exactly during the reign of uh, King Yanai this was happening, but the story doesn't work historically. But the rabbis don't care. So when King and I killed the rabbis... How many of heels that was one of his way down in the disputation? There are several Jesuses in the talent, so if we didn't mean that one... Okay. Didn't work then, doesn't work so well now. Uh, when King and I killed the rabbis, well, Yeshua ben Pachia fled to Egyptian Alexandria. So what happens? King and I, this is actually true, we know that from Josephus, King and I doesn't like the Pharisees, and he murders them, he basically persecutes them. And the story situates of Yoshua ben Pachia, a rabbi who is very rarely known from rabbinic sources, but in this case, he is one of the rabbis who flees, 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 so he goes to Egypt, and when, he, when there was peace, so he's there, right? So when there was peace, Shimon ben Shatah, by the way, he's brother-in-law of King Yanai, so he sends the following message to, uh, to Rabbi Yosheb ben Bachet. Now, letters are a really cool thing in the ancient world. We actually have, it's a whole genre of literature that we have, of letters that they wrote. And we have actual um, uh, writing that saved letters and how they wrote letters in ancient world. And we actually, this is one of the rare cases in the Talmud where we actually have 
the contents of a letter. So he sends a letter and says this, from Jerusalem to the holy city. So who's writing the letter? The city of Jerusalem. Writing it to the city of Alexandria in Egypt. To Alexandria in Egypt. Oh my sister, my husband dwells in your midst and I remain desolate. Where is this? The sister, the man desolate, what does this sound like? Code. Yeah, it's definitely a code, but where, where is this code taken from? Shira Shirin. This is definitely Shira Shirin, Achoti, right, Dodi, whatever. This is a love song, right? This is the city of Jerusalem said to Alexandria, my lover is in your midst. Who's your lover? Who's my husband? The rabbi, right? The rabbi, right? I desolate. What's the point of this letter? Basically, what's it telling? Come back. You can come back. It's safe to come back. But it's in code, obviously, because you don't want to, you know, talk to a rebel and acknowledge the fact that you're a rebel. Side note, I'll tell you that the erotic language that's uh, being uh, used here uh, has been pointed out by Boyarin and such as being, you know, uh, the rabbis often use the, to describe the relationship between them uh, in a way that, that describes, you know, a spiritual relationship between a husband and his wife. So in, the, in this case as well. So, he understands the cause. Yes. Does he? Yeah, he gets yes. up. He gets up. He gets up. Obishon arrives. And so far we only know about Obishon and Pachia, right? So he goes up and he goes and he finds himself in an inn, right? On the way from Egypt to, to Palestine, to Israel. He goes and he stops at an inn. Achsaniyah. Right? And they paid him great respect. He's a great rabbi. He comes with his entourage. He has a lot of people around him. And they stop at the inn. And everyone's very happy. And he's very happy with the way they've been treating him. Whatever, they made a nice pot of stew for him or something. He's very happy. And he says, How beautiful... This doesn't work so well in English, so bear with me. How beautiful is this achsaniya? Now, achsaniya can mean in uh, Hebrew or Aramaic, two things. It can mean either the inn or the innkeeper. Right? So he says, how beautiful is this inn? Meaning, the, the inn, the, the establishment is treating me really nicely. And then Jesus says to him, all of a sudden Jesus pops up, what do we found out? That Jesus is what? One of his Talmudim, right? Going, he, who fly to Egypt with him and is now coming back and he says to him, after hearing that word, he says, eh, her eyes are not the greatest, right? She's crooked eyes. What does he heard his master say? How beautiful is this innkeeper? So he interpreted, uh, wait, someone taught me that, um, Trump, locker room talk, right? He thinks this is, this is kind of a, ah, oh, how beautiful she is. Ah, oh, not that great, I would give her whatever she's at. Her eyes are crooked, right? This doesn't go well, right? This is all a misunderstanding based on the word in, right? In an innkeeper, achsaniya. He thinks that the master is praising the, the look of the innkeeper, when in fact the master is praising the inn. And there's a misunderstanding. And what does he say? Obisham and Papa says, You wicked student! Do you occupy yourself with Shatta thought? And he sounded 400 Shafar blasts and excommunicated him. And it's not significant that Jesus knows from the inns. I mean, that's the yoma. That he knows from inns? He was born in an inn on... He was born in a manger in an inn. Didn't have a party. There was no room in the inn. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. But in any case, I want to say that something else is significant here. I thought you were going to go in this direction. First, what, what do we see about this? Isn't he overreacting? Oh, okay. That's a very good comment. First... Let's see how the story tells the story. There's two points in the story where we know that this story is trying to be 
not being read as kipshuto, uh, literally. Right. Right? Because, you know, when you're fleeing from King Yanai and you're going to Egypt, not the first thing you pack in your suitcase is 400 shofolds, right? It's not the first thing you pack. So when you're in your hand, ah, 400 shofolds, right? That's not what you do, right? So, or maybe even one shofar. I don't know if it's going to be at the top of your list, right? To say, in case you want to excommunicate someone. I think, honestly, the story here is meant to be read as a as a as a overreaction, overreaction of uh, the rabbi, right? He's excommunicating him on the spot. He's overreacting. But if we know Matthew, and you do because I give you a handout, we know that excommunicating Jesus specifically on that is interesting in itself. Because look what Matthew says. This is a very famous passage in Matthew called the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus stands on the mount and gives a very, very, very important sermon. Uh, and in one of the passages in the sermon, look what he says. It just, by the way, comes out very, very firm in Sermon of the Mount. He says, I do not come to abolish one iota of the law. Do what the sages, what the rabbis tell you, not what they do, do what they tell you. Meaning, ra- ra- Jesus is more firm than the rabbis. He's saying to the students, you know, this is the Matthean narrative. And as part of that, look what he says. You have heard that it is said by them all time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Right? This is one of the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. It's not really what it says, but let's not go into that. But I say unto you, that what whoever looketh, I like that translation, looketh on a woman to last after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You're not allowed to do adultery? Comes Jesus and says, excuse me, adultery is too far. When have you committed adultery? When you lust with your heart. You already you started thinking about that? That's it. You're doomed. You already committed the, the offense. I'm not going to ask which of you is um, according to... Oh, wait. And if thy right eye offends thee, and if thy... I'm, I teach this really to my students, you know, the 20-year-old, and they're all like, okay. And if thy right eye offends thee, Pluck it out and cast it from thee. Even if you, if you use your eye to look at a woman and it offends you, pluck it out. It's better to be, it is profitable for thee that one thy member should perish and not that your whole body should be called, cast into hell. And if thy right hand offends thee, you touch someone, you grab someone, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should cast into hell. Look at, by the way, what Jesus does. There's two approaches to tznius, right, for modesty in, in, in general, in religious society. There's one that says the problem is with, whatever, the looker, the one who looks, and then we have to treat that person. And there's another approach that says, no, we're going to hide everything that he looks at, cover it with stockings or, you know, whatever, any, 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 or skirts, because to not offend the looker. There's two approaches. Jesus is taking very, very strongly the first approach. You have to deal with your own desires. Right? Cut off your eyes. There's a, there's a famous, I don't know if you're following Facebook, but there's like a, a singer in Israel yeah. who, who, who put tape on his eyes when he was performing in front of women. Uh, I kept saying this is uh, Matthew Mathosh. But in any case, I said... It's more complicated than that. But go back to that. Jesus said... You pluck your eye out. Look how extreme he is. He's very, very, uh, he's a canine, right? He's very, very firm in, this, in, in Matthew. And he says, pluck your eye. Now let's go back to the story. Whoever tells the story says, what did you want to say about Jesus? First, first, and, first, first, first and foremost, he's what? First he's a hypocrite. But more than that, he's very worried about what? 
I can't, don't make me say that word. Like, 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 I can't say that. Uh, 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 seriously, one of the words, I can't. So, again, we saw that already, right? Remember, they accused him of spoiling his food in public. Here again, he looks at women. Jesus has a problem with women. He's, he's like, sh- 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 he, right? He, he can't. He's, he's, yeah, I need a, a better word from that. He's sexually promiscuous. Yeah, promiscuous I can say, another one. In any case, they accuse him again of that. But more than that, he looks at the woman and again, what the problem is? The eyes, right? He looks with his eyes and that's, and that's all of a sudden he gets the reaction. We're going according, I don't know, he learned it from his rabbi, the rabbi, they think, they take very seriously looking at women and that's the, the uh, but, know that that the Talmudic story, what's your name again? Judy. Judy, I think the Talmudic story is definitely trying to make a case here, and that's going to be important in a second because that story is so important. And if it says that the rabbi overreacted, mm-hmm. that's important to say because that's going to lead to the question who's at fault in the story, right? So let's, let's start thinking about that. Okay, but let's continue. So he takes out uh, and excommunicates him. And he, the disciple, comes before the rabbi several times and sends to him, receives me. So Jesus comes back again and again and asks for forgiveness, and every time the rabbi. Mm-hmm. Refuses to see him, to see him, right? This goes along with Judy's overreaction. But the Yeshua and Pachel refused to take notes. One day, while Yeshua and Pachel was reciting the Shema, he came again before him. This time, Yeshua and Pachel wanted to receive him and made a sign to him with his hands. I actually, I did that one time, and they said, "No, you can't do that in America. That's not how you do." Wait a second, right? That's very Israeli. So, how does the American say like this or whatever? Hold this or something, yes. right? Okay. So he says something to him while he's reciting Shema. By the way, this is this is this is really important for uh, 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 this is important for scholars of, of prayer practices in the ancient world and how they, they did it. We don't really know how the rabbis pray and what they did and how they used their bodies. So that's an important sentence. But back to us, he says something to him. He says whether he was Israeli or whether you were American, I don't know. But he did something with his hand, saying, "Wait, right?" And how does Jesus read this? As if he says another rejection, when inside the rabbi meant to him. So that's it. That's like the kasha shavarat gavagamal. That's the the last straw, right? We brought the camels up, right? He says that's it. His what? I was the rabbi break this amazing. We'll talk about it in a second. But in any case, back to us. He he. That's it. He Rabbi Shavu probably repelling him, and he went. The disciple went, set up a brick, and worshipped it. Again, that's my second cue that this story is not meant to be read literally, right? No one ever accused Jesus of uh, worshipping brick. But what's, what's the under, undertone here? What's the underlying assumption is? That Jesus, what did he do at this moment? He He took, he, he basically created a right? He created a very... Don't you think it's significant that Rabbi could be. I think it's more important that he wasn't standing, because otherwise uh, then the student would know. I remember how I hinted at the fact that this gives us information about how they prayed? So oh. if Abida you have to stand. This is one of the only things we know about Amida that they used to stand and he would recognize that he was standing. And the only other part of the Fila you're not supposed to talk at is Shema. So I think that's the reason that it's Shema was chosen rather than what he was saying. If he would say it out loud and that had something to do with the contents of the Shema, then Jesus would know that he's in the middle of praying. The fact that 
it's part of the prayer that he looks normal like he's standing, like he's sitting, and he just does a thing on one hand. I think that's why they chose Shema and not Amidah, because it's two parts. But mm-hmm. because maybe, and okay, back to what? Because maybe in the Shema is written, Velo Tatulo Cherei Neichem Asher Atem Zonim. Could be. But, but again, the, the, the no, because the, 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 the fight was because he was looking at the image. So you, you're both quoting parts of the Shema. I don't know, the text itself doesn't say that he said it out loud, and the whole point is that he didn't know he was praying. So I don't think it's too much in Shema, but maybe. Okay, back to us. The story tells us he put up a brick and worshipped it. And I think the story is trying to do here, just like with the Shofar, is trying to say to us, he's what? He's a Oved He's a idol worshipper, right? So, look what we have, the accusation that we have against, but look how crude it is, right? He's crude. He, he put a brick and worshipped it. It's very crude, and I think it's meant to be understood as something not literal. But, Again, what's the accusation that's being accused of Jesus? There's the rabbi. There's the sexual, uh, sorry, the sexual accusation. And the second one is the Abu Dazara. That's the first time we've seen that. We haven't seen that. We, see, we saw him being accused of being Le and, and the second thing is we saw him being accused of being Obed Abu Dazara. So these are the two things that we learn about Jesus. And they're not the same. But what's the underlying assumption here? Yeah. Okay. So let's so let's read all the way to the end. So th- so at this point, when he puts out a, a, a brick and worships it, he Yoshua ben Pachet said to him. So he hears about this and he comes running to him. And as you say, hello, he's excommunicated. How are you talking to him? But in any case, he comes running up to him and he says to him, repent. But he answers, who's he? Jesus, Jesus answers and he says, that I have learned from you. Whoever sins and causes others to sin is deprived the power of doing penitence. Right? In the Hebrew, right? Um, I always, when I always read this, it reminds me of, I have a three-year-old, Yahav, that's very a stickler for rules. And every time I say to him, you know, put your claws on. He looks at me and says, in our house we don't yell. Like he calls me, he calls me to him, right? So he says to him, you taught me right? That uh, uh, you cannot come back and repent. Why can you not come back and repent? It's not about the, the, the brick. What's the sin that he's saying? Arabim, once you are, let's replace that, the chit arabim, made others to sin. Let's replace that with a word that's appropriate for Christianity at this point. When is Jesus not deserving of penitence? When he is successful. Once Christianity becomes successful, that's it. It's like, you know, it's like the butterfly effect thing, right? When you, that's it. It's too, too late. Christianity is already successful and I can't come back. Now, let's, have, let's stop here for a second and think of what it means. Like, we read the story and I, I'm telling you, like, I, 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 it's fresh in my mind. I just taught it to the, this Christian divinity students. This is an unbelievable story. We're reading this in the Babylonian time where we're talking about 4th, 5th century, maybe 6th century CE. Christianity is, has won big time. We know already the trouble it's going to put us through, and you know we're on the losing side. We, again, the rabbis, male, rabbinic time, etc., not we, we, but rabbis, no. They, we know where this has ended, we know where this has ended, 
and we look back at the beginning, we look back at the creation of Christianity, and what do the rabbis have to say about that? That was a mistake. Mistake. What's the word that you were using before? Misunderstanding. Overreaction. This has all, could all have been avoided. So the rabbis that late in the game look back to the, 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 the separation between Christianity and Judaism, the, cre- the creation of Christianity, and first they say, we know he was one of us. We know he was a Talmud Chacham. He fled to Egypt, again, Egypt, that we know that's a tradition of the time in the New Testament, etc., etc. But we know he was one of us. Why was he in Egypt? Because he fled with his master, with his rabbi. He quotes the rabbi back to him to say to him, he, he knows the halacha better than his rabbi by saying, I don't deserve to come back. He's a one of us. But there was a mis- two misunderstandings, one after the other, just, just led to that horrible situation we're, we're at. But the rabbi still preserved. Wait, did she finish? The rabbi, the rabbi still preserved the sense of fispus, uh, of um, uh, um, a missed opportunity, something that could have gone completely different. And they, they, I, I can't. Uh, let me stop again and say we're talking about whoever created that tradition. But not only that, whoever established it within the Talmud. And generation on generation of people reading these stories until the censorship took it out. But all of those stories that keep, you know, again and again reading the story and still preserving the sense that Jesus was one of us. He was a shenshish and he was a... Look how well I said that. He was a shenshish and he was a ovedavodazara. We don't agree with what he did. But we still preserve the sense that he was one of ours. And it could have all ended differently. And we have a part in that. We overreacted. We didn't accept him when we could. This is all a big misunderstanding. And that's an incredible statement to say that late in the game. Yeah. Okay, now let's talk about the last line. And I had a comment there from there. So the last line says, Amal Mal. Uh, where was I? Jesus and Nazarene practiced magic and deceived and led Israel astray. This sentence is quoted twice in this here in, in, in Sanhedrin, and obviously a later edition of a, a soft phrase that has what the what Jesus did, and it's added to that story. But again, it doesn't contradict the story completely because the story says he practiced magic. We know that already that the rabbis accused him of practicing magic and deceived and led Israel astray. That's the problem, right? He led Israel astray. That's why he can't repent. He he was successful in creating Christianity, right? He put up a brick and was successful in deceiving others according to the Samudic story, right? He led Israel astray, him and his disciples. You know, this is about Christianity. This is a story being told in the 4th first century. They already know that this is what, what happened to Christianity from Jesus, right? Of course it's reprojecting. This is calling... Again, we're not talking about historical Jews, and I said that from the get-go. We're not talking about the first century, we're talking about fourth and fifth century. They already know, they're looking back, right? Okay, we have very, what, 15 minutes, right, Aaron? How much longer? 15 minutes? Yeah, okay, so, sorry. We'll do very good with the last two. Yeah. 
Vatanya, right? Sanhedrin uh, uh, 43a. I'm trying to decide which of the two to read. Okay, let's do that. On the eve of Passover, Jesus the Nazarene was hanged, and Harold went forth before 40 days. The heralding Jesus the Nazarene is going forth to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and instigated and seduced Israel to idolatry. That's a sentence you know already, right? Because he should say, right? This is in the context of Sanhedrin, that you have to, when someone is sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin, there's supposed to be a herald that comes out, a kawod who comes out, and declares that someone is about to be killed. And the herald also says, if someone has something good to say about that person, come along and say it now. You give opportunity for a day off the character witnesses, right? But one of the examples is Jesus. And, and you can see here in, the, in this that this was actually uh, completely removed. There's no, this entire passage is not found in the printed edition. You have that, this is the top one. So, Jesus Nazarene was sentenced to death and a herald came out and said, whoever has anything to good to say about him, come. Whoever knows anything in his defense, come, it may come and state it. But since they did not find anything in his defense, no one came along, they hanged him on the eve of Passover. Who's hanging Jesus? Let me ask that question more carefully. Who's hanging Jesus? Who's killing Jesus according to Sanhedrin? Jews. Romans don't care about Halakha and heralding and 40 days before and this whole passage is all about Sanhedrin. According to this passage, Jews killed Jesus. And I know to say that on Christmas Eve, uh, Christmas itself. Jews killed Jesus and the Talmud has no problem taking full responsibility for that. Again, let's stop here for a second and talk about reality. Jews had no power to kill anyone. No, you know, giving any corporal punishment. The Romans are the only ones doing any killing at this point. Uh, any corporal punishment, just the Romans. The Jews had no power whatsoever. But... They imagine themselves as being able to do that. And one of the examples of them doing that is precisely Jesus. Again, 4th century, 5th century, no problem. The Jews are taking full responsibility of killing Jesus. Again, one of the surprising points in my class with my Christian disciples. They're, you know, they're all super PC and politically correct and the Jews are really nice and everything to Jesus at the time. And then you read this and like, oh, the Jews have no problem taking full responsibility of killing Jesus. By the way, how are they killing Jesus? <laughs> Hanging or stoning. There's two in here, if you know, according to, I'm not going to go into the halakha of stoning and how you hang. Not, not very nice. Go, go watch Life of Brian and you'll understand some of it. But in any case, Life of Brian, Monty Python, whoever said who has homework, go home and watch Life of Brian. But in any case, uh, Jews take full responsibility for killing Jesus. Why? What's his sin? Because they could have stopped it. He was successful again. He was successful in what he was doing. Right? Now, what's super cool about this? Not Passover, but when was he killed? According to the rabbis? Eve of Passover. Now, remember the last meal? Now, according to, to what, according to the Leonardo da Vinci, what is the last meal? And according to Matthew, Luke, the Seder, right? Obviously, there's bread on the table and, 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 and da Vinci. But in any case, it's, it's Passover, right? So Passover, and there's no... Uh, I'll leave my jokes aside. But in any case, uh, uh, it's, it's hard for me to leave my jokes aside. But in any case, I really value my jokes. But in any case, uh, he's... he's killed on the eve of Passover, so he cannot have been present at the last meal of Passover meal. What's so cool about this? That you know how we have four Gospels? 
We have Matthew, Luke, and uh, Mark. They have. We, humanity, have four Gospels. They have four no. Gospels. And uh, the fourth one, in John, actually, John 13, Jesus is actually killed on the eve of Passover. And the last meal is actually the meal the night before of Udime, right? The, the night with the Passover Koban, uh, uh, right? So according to, to John, they have a different tradition, and the rabbis share that tradition. I'll talk, I'll talk about it in a second while I summarize everything that I said. If we're talking about what the rabbis knew and where their information comes from, this is one of the unique spots where I can say not only do they have Christian tradition, they have specific Christian tradition. The ones that found in John and not in the other uh, sources, which is cool in itself. I haven't said cool enough today. And last source... Last source... According to the Sanhedrin, that's true. That's true. Back to us. Bablegitim. Really, really quickly. There's so much to say about those last two sources. Uh, last source. Bablegitim. And Onkelus. Uh, is what, who's rumored to have translated Torah into uh, Aramaic. And he is considering uh, converting to Judaism. But he's a smart guy. He doesn't convert on the whim, right? He wants to know that it's worth his while. So what does he do? He does, uh, how's it called? Uh, necromancy? You know, when you raise up uh, bodies and talk to the dead. Okay. So, he, so who does he raise from the dead to ask him if it's worth it? He, he takes three people. He does Titus. That's one of the, uh, the Roman uh, emperors. Titus. By the way, go see. It's the last days of the Arch of Titus. Yeah. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, and uh, the YU uh, Museum. Uh, the, the, it's really wonderful. They recreated the Arch of Titus or whatever. Go see it. But that's not my point. Second is Bilam. Right? Bilam is the uh, 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 non-Jewish uh, prophet in the Bible who is called to curse Israel. And the third one, Jesus. So he, uh, seeing the manuscript, instead of Jesus, they turn it Poshe Israel, the, the criminals of Israel, in the, ma- in the printed edition, as opposed to Jesus. Uh, in, in, uh, so he, he, he raises Jesus. And he says to him, I, I, can't, I can't go into detail. He says, what should I convert? And he says, definitely stick to Israel. God is on their side. Definitely go do what they do. And then he asks him, and that's the last line, I jump to the end, and he says to him, what is your punishment? And Jesus says, so what are you do, well, how do you spend your time now, in, like after you're dead? Notice, by the way, that Jesus has a body according to this. You know, according to Jesus, to Christian tradition, he doesn't, right? He, he, he rises up after three days, there's no body. According to this, there's a body, you can find it. He resurrects the body, and he asks him, how do you spend your days? And what does he say? Boiling Poop. Boiling excrement. That's what I do when I'm in... You don't want to hear about the other two. But in any case, you do want to, but in any case. uh, He specifically is in boiling excrement in the the next world. And why? Look at his explanation. Is it because he was sexually promiscuous? No. Is it because he was uh, an idol worshiper? Because he was successful? No. Why is he in boiling excrement? That's like the cherry on top of the cake. If you make fun of your rabbis, you're going to be doomed in boiling poop. I think every teacher has to put that on top of his blackboard and say to his students, 
That's your punishment according to the... And the rabbis themselves say that, right? Obviously, yeah. So they're saying, they're imagining... This is a very cool text to, to, to learn in post-colonial theories, right? How do the minority imagine what happens to the people who persecute or comes against them in the afterwards? And how they're imagining him? In boiling excrement. That's the worst of the worst, right? That he's in boiling excrement. Now, first, look at the, manus- the handout that I gave you. So this is this is uh, Gitim. So Jesus was uh, uh, redacted in the in the in the most of the stuff that I showed is in printed edition, right? They took out the Jesus and they replaced it or they erased stuff. But this is a cool case where the actual manuscript was actually changed uh, because look where the manuscript is from. This is manuscript for Gitim from the Vatican. So this is a manuscript that was actually in the man in the Vatican library. And look what they did with the story, right? I don't know. Look at this, this is that. But Dina de Ugavo the middle the middle line. What what are you sentenced by? Amalo Someone there connected all the letters so you can't read that he's in boiling poop. Someone did not want the the, the the Vatican manuscript to have that about Jesus, which is really uh, awesome in itself. Okay. Why boiling excrement? Right? So, first, if we talk about what we saw about Jesus, the depiction of Jesus in rabbinic sources, we saw he is sexually promiscuous, we saw he is idol worshiper, we saw that he is uh, a Talmud Chacham, one of ours, it could have been different, and now he's making fun of rabbinic sayings. But he's also sitting in boiling excrement, and this is Peter Schaeffer's uh, um, Suggestion. I'm not sure that he's right, and this is where I, I join forces with the two comments that were done before. He says, in one famous passage, we don't have time to read, in Matthew 15, uh, Jesus uh, is being attacked by the Pharisees. The commentator said, listen, we see your students, and they don't wash your hands before they eat. How's that possible? We have this agreement that, you know, we keep the company, we keep them exposed. How are you students not keeping this? Why are they not washing their hands and eating? It's a huge thing, defilement of food, it was a big halachic issue then. And what does Jesus say? Jesus defends his students. And the way that he defends others as well. What does he say? He doesn't say it's not important to wash your hands. He says it is. But, you have your priority wrong. It's much more important what comes out of your mouth than what comes in in your mouth. You're paying so much attention to kosher issues and and oh you and okay. But are you making enough, are you paying enough attention to what you're saying? That's what Jesus said. And he does it often in other, other stuff as well. Again, Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't wash your hands, but he says, keep your priorities straight. What's more important? Schaefer says, the rabbis, what are they doing here? They're doing it the other way around. Oh, it's not important what you put in your mouth. It's important what comes out of your body. Okay, fine. You live with what comes out of your body for the for eternity. This is Schaefer's suggestion. Uh, I think you might be taking it a bit too far, but in any case, that's Schaefer's suggestion about the boiling poop specifically. Why is it funny? Okay, I have five minutes to summarize what I want to tell you and give you a preview of tomorrow. What am I interested in? What am I interested in? I am interested as a scholar in the question of what did, jo- what did Jews know of Christian? How, how did they portray them in the ancient world? How, how did they think about Christianity? How much they know about this? What can they tell me about Jews and Christian in the ancient world? I don't know if you've heard a little bit about the metaphor of the parting of the ways. There was this sense in, in scholarship in the past that, you know, once Jesus comes along and his students come along, Christianity is formed, and then Jews and Christians are two separate religions. 
or mother religion and daughter religion that spreads off and continues. I'm actually part of a newer, more nuanced way of looking at the sources and saying it's actually not as simple as that. We see as late as the 5th, 6th century that while the Jews, when they talk about Jesus, can use very harsh terms, they're putting in boiling poop. They're accusing him of being sexually permissive. They're accusing him of being a illegitimate son. That's, this is bad stuff, not fun stuff, not good stuff. And these, these passages were actually at the heart of very harsh, you mentioned in the past, uh, 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 persecution against the Talmud. There's what's called the Talmud trial. Uh, the Talmud, the, there's a reason censorship cut this out, because this is, this is tough stuff. So Christianity is back, right? We're poo 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 Jesus. But... Like a good stand-up comedian, in order to make a good joke, you have to know your material, and your audience has to know your material in order to be funny, right? Mm -hmm. For if a stand-up comedian makes a joke about how difficult it is to get your kids, I made that joke on, on, on Shabbat, to how difficult it is to get your kids out of the house in the morning, right? Oh, and the, the sock that falls, and the head that falls, whatever. If some of the crowds have never done it, this is like, uh, oh, really? Okay, that's not fun. I'm not telling with gender, but uh, uh, really, that is really so difficult. It's not, it won't be funny, right? It has to be funny if you've done this, the, that I have a sense of 90% of my time is putting, putting my kids into the car and out of the car. That's what I do 90% of my time. It's only funny because I've done it, right? I have to know what it feels like. I have to know the mechanism of it, right? The same way when we're talking about Jesus in the Talmud. In order for the rabbis to talk about Jesus the way they do, look how much they know about Jesus. They know that he went to Egypt. They know that he claims that he does miracles. They know that they claim that he cut, he went to that he um, uh, um, what did I say? Raised Egypt, <coughs> magic, Sorry, son of a virgin. He he got tattoos. Tattoos. Wait, thank you. I'm I'm collecting all the sources. But more than that, right? We say that he. No one came for his defense. We didn't have time to talk about this. Knowing that no one came for his defense, Jesus himself says, no one is going to come defend me. And the rabbis know about this. They know about the evil Passover that comes from John. They know, look how much information they have about Jesus. In order to make, to create this tradition, look how much information they have to have, they must have had about Christianity. They make fun of the fact that Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount, whoever looks at the woman should take his eye out. They know a passage from the, the Sermon of the Mount. So the amount, So how did they know it? That's a different question. Did they spend time reading Gospels? I don't think so. But wh what's their source of information? How much they know? But look how much they know in order to make fun. And, and that's one thing. But second of all, and this leads me to my next talk for tomorrow, the story that talks about of Yeshua ben Pasia and Jesus going to Egypt, doesn't even have that full-fledged boiling poop effect. This is a story that has, it has nuance in it. It has, we, he used to be one of ours, and it could have ended differently. This is a story that's told very, very late and says, we were, he was one of us, we were so close, and this is all a misunderstanding. And it could have ended differently, and we had part of it. And I think the Talmud actually preserves a sense of Closeness at the same time of saying, well, this ended very badly, but it could have ended differently, and there was a closeness in the beginning, which leads me to my talk tomorrow, which is going to be a turn at 80, 180 degrees to, to look at other sources from Christian sources that actually are incorporated in Talmud, not in a polemical way. 
looking at Christianity, having access to Christian sources, and saying, well, that doesn't sound so bad after all. We might make use of that. And that's what we'll do tomorrow, not on Christmas. But uh, this is where we are. So complicated. In, in one word, I have one minute left. One word. If we look at the Jesus in the Talmud narrative, we have, I think, the best word to describe what we have is complicated. Murkav. On the one hand, it's polemic. On the other hand, it shows familiarity with the sources and it shows a nuanced approach to it and still remembrance of the shared past and the shared, how things could have done could have been different.